The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. Welcome to this evening's V Brownback. This is uh, Frank speaking, and today with me I have got Eve Fauser, who's going to present NSX for Kubernetes, um, Advanced Networking and Security Concepts. And just a little bit of housekeeping before we kick things off. Um, if you have any questions during the webinar, uh, I think if you're you're very happy uh, to take them head on, right? People don't need to wait Absolutely. until the yeah, that's yeah, that's the easiest way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. So either raise your hand or uh, post your questions in the chat, or you can also use the Twitter hashtag um, uh, vbrownback. Um, we've got weekly shows going on. If you do want to present a topic yourself, feel free to reach out to me. Um, at fpixel uh, via Twitter, or simply um, use our uh, website, uh, com. And with that, over to you, Eve. Okay, so now you have to pass me the presenter rights, I guess. Yep. There we go. Okay, so. Uh, hello from my side also. Uh, my name is Yves Fauser. I'm a senior technical product manager in VMware's network and security business unit. And yeah, as Frank always said, uh, I'll present uh, on NSX uh, for Kubernetes. And uh, that includes obviously a lot of uh, Kubernetes network topics. So standard disclaimer slide. I guess you saw that uh, quite often already. So we'll just skip it. We'll start with a quick NSXT introduction. <laughs> Actually, it's funny that I have two times a one here, so sorry for that. And then uh, we'll go into a Kubernetes networking overview, uh, and then we'll see how those things uh, tie together in the integration, followed by a demo, and then we can uh, end the session with some more Q&A. Okay, so NSXT. Um, a lot of you guys know uh, NSX for vSphere, which is our prime product for the vSphere world. So what is NSXT? Well, it aligns to the vision we have, um, we have already laid out uh, two years ago, which is uh, having NSX everywhere. Having NSX in private and public cloud environments, um, on-premise, off-premise, for end users, um, for any kind of IoT devices, branch offices, and for new app frameworks. And with new app frameworks, what we're currently targeting the most is Kubernetes and Cloud Foundry. And so this session is especially about Kubernetes uh, and NSX. And the platform we are using for all of those things is NSXT simply because if you want to be able to support multiple hypervisors, if you want to be able to support multiple uh, public clouds, private clouds, et cetera, we need something that is independent from vCenter and from, uh, it's decoupled from vCenter and that's what NSXT gives us. So NSXT um, is composed of first and foremost the transport side so the data pass uh, or the data plane. And here we're talking about uh, kernel modules for ESXi uh, and for KVM or Linux OSs to be more specific. Uh, on ESXi, we are using the vSwitch that we also use for NSXV. So it's the VDS plus uh, 
specific uh, kernel modules that we have for NSXT. On the KVM side, we're using OVS. Then we have uh, other types of what we call transport nodes in a data plane. Uh, one is the so-called NSX Edge Gateway. Uh, so this is where we have layer three services um, and also other advanced services like NAT. Um, this is our entry and exit point of the virtual networks to the physical network over a layer three hop, so over a routed hop. Uh, we're also supporting layer two bridging where we can connect um, VLANs in the physical world to uh, logical networks in the virtual world over layer two. So we're bridging those two and you have a direct layer two adjacency without going through a routing hop. Then we have the control plane side, uh, which is the NSX uh, controllers. Uh, it's a cluster of uh, three nodes um, that share the load uh, and that uh, form a cluster for high availability. Uh, and that's uh, part of this whole control plane, uh, management plane separation. And we have the NSX manager. This is your entry and exit, uh, not entry, exit, entry point <laughs> to the configuration um, through the API, also the UI. Uh, in terms of Kubernetes, you will see it's the target endpoint for uh, the API, which we create uh, objects in NSX. So this is where uh, you uh, define what the logical networks should look like, and then they are persisted and then sent to the control plane uh, to be uh, actually uh, done in, in the data plane. Um, on the cloud consumption side, we have all sets of things. It can be OpenStack, it could be Kubernetes, it could be VRA in the future, VRO. So anything that can call the API is basically that uh, consumption. And here we're talking about Kubernetes today. So one additional level of detail, which is the uh, workflow. So if uh, you make a configuration on the management plane node, the first thing that happens is that this configuration is persisted. So you would create a logical network, a logical router, <laughs> and that is just first and foremost um, entered into the database and persisted. Then the uh, NSX manager talks to the control plane side, to the NSX controllers, and uh, informs them of a new object being created, something like a logical switch. And then the control plane is talking to uh, what we call the local control plane on the transport nodes. And this is where then the configuration is uh, translated into low level objects of the data pass. So uh, as an example in OVS, it, it would be uh, open flow entries in OVS that form the actual switching data pass. So this is how things get realized in NSXT. Um, I guess that is the most important slide to really understand uh, what we will be talking about in the Kubernetes integration. And this talks uh, about the routing uh, infrastructure or the routing layers inside of NSXT. And I wanna draw your attention on the picture on the uh, upper left side. So here you see we have two tiers of routing. We have so-called tier zero routers and tier one routers. And those are, um, I would say, administrative constructs um, that are influenced by the way people uh, build a multi-tenant network today. So 
you would have a um, aggregation layer, which would be your tier zero router. And that is where an admin pre-creates something. So think of like the central router in some co-location uh, where uh, the co-location facility owner is basically aggregating all the tenants, which are in some racks, and is attaching the tenants' routers to this core router. Um, and you, you, you see that kind of uh, set up here in the logical space too. So the admin pre-creates that tier zero router, and then the tenants all get a tier one router that gets attached to the tier zero router. And a tenant could be an OpenStack tenant, a VRA tenant, or in our case, as you will see, a Kubernetes namespace, which is a Kubernetes uh, tenancy construct. Now, if you know NSX for vSphere, you might think that the tier one is the distributed router and the tier zero is uh, a centralized router. That is not the case in NSXT. All routing layers in NSXT uh, can be distributed or centralized dependent on if they use services or not. If you only use routing without any NAT, then both the tier one and the tier zero will be distributed. Of course, if you want to um, exit and enter the logical network to the physical network, you still need some central place to do so. That central place is what we call the edge gateways, and those edge gateways are either physical form factor, so a software installed on a bare metal server, or VM form factor, uh, so basically your edge gateway deployed as a VM. These edge gateways perform all the services like NAT, but they also give you interfaces to connect to the physical world. And we're using Intel's Data Pass Development Kit, DPDK, um, to achieve very high performance. So here we're talking in the bare metal form factor for uh, of up to 40 gigabits per core, per CPU core, so not a per edge gateway, per core. Well, and the last picture on the bottom just shows that we are uh, using encapsulation, obviously, to build those logical uh, network, those logical switches. Um, this encapsulation is different from what we do with NSX for vSphere, we're using uh, another encapsulation protocol, which is called Geneve here, which is uh, currently a draft standard, uh, close to be finalized. And the benefit that Geneve gives us is that we can put in more metadata of the traffic you transport into the Geneve uh, tunnel headers. So you can add uh, metadata like what happens on every hop, uh, et cetera, and we're making use of that uh, in several tools, and one of the tools that makes use of this uh, additional header space is the traceflow tool that you will see later in the demo. Okay, with that, we'll leave NSXT. This was the quickest overview you could get. Um, we can well, certainly arrange a new session somewhere to go into a deep dive of NSXT. Hmm. Yep, there's what? a question. Yeah, one quick question on, um, since the audience here is, uh, lot of home labbers as well um, with uh, NSXV, right? You, uh, if you have VMAC advantage, for example, you you get licenses um, for for download. If you're a V expert, you get licenses for download. Um, from a encapsulation um, point of view, NSXV um, was was never an issue in in that regard. Even if you have a very simple switch, everything just 
works, right? Um, is, mm -hmm. is there anything you should keep uh, or pay attention to um, with NSXT? Um, is it the same, just basically rack stack your Intel NUCs or uh, Supermicros or HP microservers and everything just works? Or is there some configuration needed on, on the actual networking side that, that people should be aware of? No, so from the networking side, everything is pretty much the same. I mean, the, the encapsulation protocol doesn't really make a difference uh, if you use VXLAN or Geneve. Uh, one thing that you need to be cautious uh, about is the fact that NSXT edge gateways use Intel's Data Pass Development Kit, DPDK. And so they make use of uh, various um, CPU functionality, uh, like uh, huge pages, like AES uh, offload, um, like uh, what, what else? Let me think. What else is it? So there are a number of, of CPU features that are simply needed um, for DPDK to work. And so no matter if you use the VM form factor or even the physical factor, you might run into situations where your edge gateway will not boot, uh, especially if you use AMD uh, chips or if you use very old uh, Intel CPUs. So everything that is like, I don't know, three years old or so is still fine. Everything that is older than that, you might run into issues. Now cool. with the Nooks that's like Core i5 as far as I remember, I, I think that should be okay. I never yeah. tried it out myself. But So the yeah. most popular ones that start to take 32 gig of RAM um, are either an i5 or i7, fourth gen, sixth gen, or seventh gen. So mm. fourth gen should should be decent enough, I'd say. I would hope. I mean, I don't know about the huge pages, but I would hope. Actually, it's a good point. I, at some point, I need to try it out. I have three nooks in, in my shelf here, but I never tried it out yet. Okay. So I guess let's go on from here. So Kubernetes, yeah. Is there another one or? Yes, one more question on that regard, okay. uh, especially on the NOOCs. Um, so with, uh, with the NOOCs, you had basically one onboard NIC, right? So you, you had to trick ESXi a bit, either with a USB adapter or um, Volume Lamb has a script on how to migrate with only one NIC uh, to a DV switch to actually get NSXV working. Um, mm -hmm. Any challenges with only one NIC port for, for NSXT as well? Likely, yes. Um, so there is a, a way to re, to use only one NIC also with NSXT, but it's not that much out of the box. You need to trick uh, things a bit uh, with some API calls to do the migration of your uh, VM kernel, um, your VM case to the NSXT logical switch. Uh, it works, but it's not a out of the box easy solution. Cool. Sounds, so sounds like at a nice some point, point, somebody needs to play with that and document it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay, so let's go on with the Kubernetes networking overview. So I guess Michael gave you a lot of information about Kubernetes itself last week. Uh, so for those that didn't uh, see it, I, I'll recommend you to watch the recording. Uh, so I'll not go into a deep dive of all the components. Um, what we are integrating with is both on the Kubernetes API server side and on the nodes um, with the so-called CNI plugin that I will talk about uh, later. 
Um, so Kubernetes has one great thing, which is you can ask for callbacks for changes of objects in Kubernetes. So if you create an object like a namespace or a pod, then uh, we can watch for events on, on that specific pass uh, in, in, the, uh, in the object model. And then we get a callback. And we are doing that uh, on the Kubernetes API server side. So we're watching for events, and then we create things. On the node side, obviously, we need to patch those pods, those containers, into the logical networks. And there is a uh, standard, a spec called CNI, Container Network Interface, that the component of Kubernetes that runs on the node, which is kubelet, uh, calls. And then the CNI plugin does its work, and we are providing a CNI plugin for uh, NSXT. So the CNI plugin does its work and then patches um, the pods into the logical networks. We'll go into much more detail on that in the next couple of slides. So talking about the pods, uh, here's something that, uh, that you need to know to understand the whole concept. I'm pretty sure Michael also talked about it, but uh, since it's very important on the networking side, I'll repeat it. So Kubernetes itself doesn't really um, schedule containers. It schedules what is called pods. And a pod is a collection of containers. And the idea behind it is um, if you follow really the rule of only having one process in each container, then you will need multiple containers to work with each other to provide a single functional unit. So the example I always give is if you have a web server listening here on port 80 um, serving a website, then this web server will write logs. Now those logs somehow need to be um, sent out uh, either through syslog or they need to be uh, collected and aggregated and sent to some central logging place where you do analysis on them. And that is another process. So that's not the web server doing it itself, right? So if you would bundle everything in a container, you would need to start an init system in a container, which is a bad thing from a purist point of view. So what uh, Kubernetes gave you or gives you is the ability to um, co-locate, let's say, those containers that form a single functional unit. And those containers then have a clear process separation, but they have access to the same file system resource and the same networking resource. So now your web server is writing his logs, and your logging, um, your logging process that runs in a different container is able to read the logs because it has access to the same file system resource, and then sends it out um, to a log aggregator. So from a networking and file system perspective, they're using the same uh, resource on the Linux OS. They're using the same IP namespace. And they're using the same file system. Uh, on the process side, they are isolated. That obviously means that a pod um, can only live on a single node. So you can't have two containers of a pod on two different uh, nodes, on two different uh, uh, hosts, let's say. Uh, I guess that's enough for the pod. Uh, and again, Kubernetes schedules pods, and those pods get IP addresses. And in Kubernetes, every pod needs to be able to reach every other pod uh, in the cluster through its IP address directly. 
Then there is a dynamic DNS service uh, called CoreDNS, um, before it was called SkyDNS, that is running in the cluster. And this is used um, to uh, do service discovery. So let's say you have a web front end with a couple of parts serving that web front end, and that web front end wants to find its app service. It does that by querying DNS and getting then the answer from um, from core DNS about the IP address to contact or the IP addresses to contact uh, for this service. So you don't hard code IP addresses or those kind of things in uh, Kubernetes part. And that works together with the east-west load balancing uh, solution in Kubernetes, which is the Kubernetes service. So the Kubernetes service itself is first and foremost a way of organizing pods that um, that serve a service. So in, in that picture on the left, we have two pods that are my Redis slave pods. So those, are, as the name says, give me a Redis uh, service. When I create a service in Kubernetes, I will say, um, find all those pods um, that have a specific label in its its name. So if I create a service, I I, I uh, define the selector, and in the selector I say search for pods that have the label Redis. And then on the pods for Redis or on the replication controller for Redis, I say uh, label those pods with Redis. And so when I create the service, it will now know that all these pods that have the right labels belong to that service. And it will list the pod's IP addresses as endpoints of the service. So now when my web front end wants to find this Redis uh, service, it will ask for Redis slave.cluster.local. And then uh, core DNS will respond and will give, and now that's uh, the important distinction, in either a single IP address or it will return um, different IP addresses each time it's asked. Um, now, uh, the second one, the different IP addresses, obviously it gives the direct endpoint IP address every time it's asked, is round robin DNS. That's usually not what you want to do because then you have all kinds of DNS stale caches, etc. So people don't do that. What we are doing is we are giving the service what is called a cluster IP. So that's a virtual IP address. In that picture, you see it as 172.30.0.24. And that IP address is present on each and every node, but is only uh, available inside of the node. So if the web front end pod sends traffic, or first of all, does the DNS request, it gets that IP address, then it sends the traffic to that IP address, to that cluster IP. And then as you will see in the next slide, IP tables takes care of removing that IP address, selecting one of the real endpoints, one of the real parts, and sending the traffic to it. Again, I have a separate slide to make that more colorful in the next, uh, in the next slide. So that's all for east-west load balancing. So you get distributed east-west load balancing for free uh, inside of Kubernetes uh, with uh, what is called uh, proxy, uh, which is what is what is uh, using uh, IP tables here. For North-South, 
that's a different uh, story. For north-south, so if you want to reach something inside of the cluster from the external side, you need to either use a uh, so-called node port, I'll explain that in two slides from now, uh, or you use what is called an ingress controller. And an ingress controller is your load balancer that is exposed to the outside world to do the north-south load balancing. And I'll speak about the ingress controller in, in a little while, so I don't need to uh, detail that now. So here's the promised uh, diagram of what QProxy does um, for east-west load balancing. So if my uh, web pod uh, wants to reach one of the uh, Redis slave pods, it will send uh, the traffic to the uh, cluster IP address. In IP tables, that cluster IP address is then translated to one of the destination pods, and it can either be sent to one of the local pods if there is one uh, pod on that uh, specific node or to another node, right? So on the wire, so in between those nodes, you will never see that cluster IP. You will always only see the pods uh, IP addresses. Now I talked about node port as a solution for north-south for entry and exit point into the cluster. And what people use for node port is um, you configure some external load balancer. Think of your F5 load balancer or maybe even an NSX load balancer or whatever. And that one hosts a virtual IP, which uh, resolves if you do a DNS query from the external side and uh, listens to TCP port 80. Then that load balancer is programmed to send the traffic from TCP port 80 to, um, to a pool of servers, which is all the nodes in your cluster, or maybe selected nodes in the cluster. But it sends the traffic to the node's management IP addresses, and then some ephemeral port. Uh, here I use the example 30123. That traffic then hits IP tables um, on TCP 30123, is then going into the same table we saw earlier for the uh, load balancing to pods. The management, the destination IP, which is the management IP of the node, is replaced with the real destination IP of one of the pods. And that might be one of the parts on another node, so it exits the node again and goes to the other one. So that's not a very nice way of doing things, um, especially your, your physical load balancer will have to be configured with a lot of uh, static um, servers uh, and health checks, et cetera, can get complicated. Um, so yeah, let's just keep it this way. It's It's kind of a hack, it's not really, uh, what we would uh, want to use in a very dynamic environment. And that brings us to um, ingress, which is what people mostly do today. Um, and with ingress, you um, create pods that serve quite often both the data path of the uh, ingress and the controller pad. So, those pods talk to the Kubernetes API. They watch for so-called ingress resources, which are uh, load balancing rules, uh, pointing some host entry, like bikeshop.com here in this picture, um, and maybe even some paths after the host, uh, and points them to a destination service. And that destination service would be my web front end here. 
And then the data pass side of the Ingress controller is programmed to get that traffic, to look for the host name and the URL, and to then send it to the destination parts. So it doesn't send it uh, to the nodes management IPs in the node port way, as you saw before. It really sends it directly to the destination part IPs. And as I said, mostly you have a combined data pass and controller implementation, but there are some implementations out there, like the one from F5, where you have the controller actually programming an external load balancer to do the same job. So both is a valid way, and the ingress object itself is really just a layer seven load balancing rule. Okay, so this is one of the last slides on uh, base concepts in Kubernetes, which is the namespace. I'm not sure if Michael talked about it. Um, in Kubernetes, the namespace is both a name uniqueness construct as well as um, a tenancy construct. So it started as name uniqueness. If you have uh, two Redis master pods in your system, then their name would collide. Um, so there is no things like UUIDs uh, in uh, Kubernetes. Um, so again, the name would collide. So you put a different uh, prefix in the pass, and this is called namespaces. Um, but namespaces then were, were um, enhanced to be real tenancy constructs. Uh, it started off with quota per namespace, with CPU and memory limits. But now we also have um, role-based access control on a namespace level, so you can define uh, what user groups or users are allowed to do what in which namespaces. And we also have networking policies. So I can define on a per namespace basis what is allowed into the namespace and what the parts inside of the namespace are allowed to reach. Are they allowed to reach each other? So now it's a real, um, tenancy construct. I would um, pause for a little second. If there are any questions, I would take them now. Uh, no questions as of yet. Okay. Just double so check. Then I'll just... Yep. <laughs> okay, then I'll just go on. So in terms of topologies for um, base Kubernetes, let's say, without any uh, additional network integration, what you get is what I call the flat routed topology. And with that, I mean there is no tenancy in that routing topology. And the way this works is, as I said, every part in the Kubernetes cluster needs to be able to talk to every other part over its IP address. And each IP address of the part needs to be unique. So that's very different from Docker. If you know Docker, then you can install 10 Docker hosts and it will all use the same IP addresses on the Docker Zero bridge, right? But not in Kubernetes. In Kubernetes, every node needs to have a uh, specific IP address range for the pods that are running on that node. So here, node one uses 10.24.1 uh, slash 24, so that's the first subnet, and here we have a two. So if this part wants to talk to another part on another node, it needs to somehow exit that node uh, and needs to be routed by either the physical network or whatever the underlying network is, which might also be uh, an IS network, like could be NSX again. Um, 
So the underlying network needs to know which subnet is on what node. And if you just use physical gear, then you have to enter static routes uh, into each and every of those physical switches to point to the right node. And this is one of the uh, biggest problems of this implementation, which is you need to somehow automate um, the route creation, or you need to accept the fact that you need to ask a, a network administrator to create those uh, routes. Uh, of course, in a lot of cases, this routing addition would be uh, automated. On the positive side, um, you don't have any influences of NAT. You don't break any protocols with NAT. And if one of those parts talks to some external system, it's visible with, with its own IP address. But that IP address only tells the outside world it came from that Kubernetes node. It doesn't, it, it doesn't not relate it to the tenancy construct. It's not related to the namespace or anything like that, which is kind of difficult in today's enterprise networks because especially external firewalls or ACLs in, in, in database systems, et cetera, they want to match on some IP address and they want to know, does it come from this tenant or does it come from that tenant? This is difficult uh, because you can't really distinguish between uh, I, from, from looking at the IP address if it comes from one tenant or the other tenant. Now, with all these complications of having to add routes to the physical network, um, people um, started to use overlays between the nodes. And the most uh, popular one is uh, a technology and open source product uh, project called Flannel. There are others. Um, there is uh, Weave, there is all sets of implementations. And here, instead of uh, asking for routes on the downstream network, the nodes themselves learn from the from each other's subnets or learn each other's subnet through a centralized uh, key value store. In Kubernetes, they're using the same key value store that Kubernetes itself uses. And then um, they basically distribute the reachability information between all those nodes. So now if this part here wants to talk to that part, we'll send the traffic out and here the flannel agent will now know to reach that destination IP, it needs to encapsulate the packet with another additional IP header, send it to the destination node where this additional IP header is, is uh, removed, and then it's gonna reach your uh, destination part. So it's the same as what um, NSX does uh, between hypervisors, but here we do it between Kubernetes nodes. So that solves the uh, routing challenge. Um, the problem with it is you know, there are multiple problems with that. First of all, you need to somehow get in and out of those overlays. And uh, uh, to get out, you basically have to use source net and you use the source IP of the node itself as the source IP of the traffic from the parts. So now if you look again uh, at our external firewall or at our database system, it's not that it only now sees the pod's IP, it now only sees the node's IP with some ephemeral pod. So it gets even more difficult to actually find out where the traffic came from. And you need to open up a whole lot of range of nodes 
uh, IP addresses and ephemeral parts um, that you uh, allow access into uh, some core pieces of your infrastructure. On the other side, to get into the overlays, you only have two possibilities, which is ingress or node port, right? And for node port, um, it has the drawbacks that I said, so you need to have some external um, load balancer that points to either all your nodes or some selected nodes. You will have cross traffic between the nodes, etc. So it's it's not really ideal, but it solves the first challenge, which is not to have uh, to program the physical layer. Okay, so now that I said um, what uh, what the base implementation is doing and what others are doing, let's have a look at what we are doing and how we do things differently. So the first thing that we decided was to give the tenancy construct in Kubernetes, which is the namespace, uh, a network meaning. So we wanted the namespace to have um, specific IP subnets, uh, specific routers and switches, and that's what we did. So if you create a namespace in Kubernetes, we will create a tenant router, a tier one router that I explained earlier. We will create a logical switch. We will start off with one logical switch. And we will address that logical switch uh, with a uh, subnet that we retrieve from NSX's new IPAM functionality. So now we really can distinguish if the traffic comes from that specific namespace, it will come from that specific subnet, or there is a, a little more of a detail, from a specific source nut IP. Uh, why am I saying that? So we had different sets of customers. We had customers that said, okay, I don't want those 10,000s of pods to all have a routable IP address in my corporate network. I, I don't have enough IP addresses to assign to pods. And so I want those pods to be behind NAT. I don't have a problem with NAT. And so the default way of working is if you create a namespace, we will assign a subnet to that namespace uh, that will address those pods. But we will also create a source NAT entry on the tier zero so that if traffic comes from that namespace, it will use that specific source NAT IP, which is also assigned by NSX. The big difference between what we are doing and what uh, the SNAT is doing in the overlay case that we saw before is that this SNAT IP is specific to the namespace. So now I can enter that IP address in my firewall rules, in my database, etc., to be allowed to access uh, backend systems. And that IP address is, is attached to that namespace as long as it exists. And I would assume through the IPAM functionality, I actually have choice about what the exact IP range is going to be, right? Correct, yeah. correct. So I create a block of IPs, um, and then a subnet is assigned from that block. Um, and so uh, I, I then see what, what block was assigned to that namespace. I can enter that in my firewall rule table. Okay, cool. Now, on the right side here, you see namespace bar and uses a different set of IPs. And that's because we also support the case where somebody wants to create a namespace that doesn't use NAT, which might be because there might be protocols in there that break because of NAT, uh, or because you really want to see each 
IP address that was assigned to a specific pod in logs, in firewall systems, etc. And so what we allow to do is to create a namespace with a specific annotation saying, don't use NAT, no SNAT for that specific namespace. And then it will use a different IP block out of NSXS IPAM and use a different IP range and will not create that uh, NAT entry. Then obviously here we have a high performance entry and exit point um, of this overlay network. So we are not using the management IPs of the node VMs themselves. Uh, we are really uh, entering and exiting uh, the networks through our high performance uh, gateway that uses TPDK. Um, then here down on the, on the downlink side, each and every of these pods is connected with an interface to uh, a logical switch in NSX. And those logical switches span across all the nodes. So they are not really specific to the node, they are specific to the namespace. And for each and every of these pods, you have the full set of features that you also have for VM interfaces. We have all sets of counters. You can start uh, uh, mirroring sessions, so send traffic to an analysis station export flow records and analyze all the flows that happen between pods. Uh, you have the troubleshooting tools and we apply spoof guard to every pod. So we really enforce the IP address and MAC address that get allocated to that pod. And in fact, we uh, have a uh, report out there from Coldfire um, that tested uh, our NSXT Kubernetes integration and uh, validated it that you can use it in a PCI context and put um, pods in one namespace and isolate it from other namespaces and have cardholder data in one namespace and any kind of other uh, uh, services in another namespace. So that really um, gives you a whole new set of uh, uh, possibilities to do real isolation inside of Kubernetes. Okay, what else here? Um, yeah, each, each interface has its firewall, um, just as NSX does, right, for, for VMs. It does that for pods also. And I guess I'll leave it with that. So the component that does all this magic and creates all those topologies, etc., is a piece of software we call the NSX Container Plugin. And that NSX Container Plugin is a Docker image that you will find um, on uh, the uh, download pages of NSX on, on downloads.vmware.com. Um, so you would upload that to your private registry and then create um, a, a pod itself or a replication control in, NSX, in, in Kubernetes that runs that piece of software for you. And on one side, it has an adapter layer where it uh, talks to the Kubernetes API uh, later on, we will see other um, implementations um, like Cloud Foundry, et cetera. Um, but right now we are talking about Kubernetes. And on the other side, it talks to uh, NSX Manager over its API to create all those uh, objects. And in, in the middle, we have kind of the workflow layer that does all the creation of, of objects. So let's go through one example. Um, as I said, uh, Kubernetes has this capability to watch for object changes. So this is what we do. When we start the NCP, 
we will watch a whole set of objects and one of them will be namespace events. As soon as a user creates a new namespace, uh, we get a notification and then we start our workflow, create a logical switch, create a tier one router, request an IP subnet out of the block and attach that logical switch to the logical router and a tier one logical router to the tier zero and create the SNOT entry, right? So quite easy workflow. Uh, here's uh, how it looks like if you create the namespace in Kubernetes, then as I said, you create that topology, you create another one here. Uh, and what I wanna show in this diagram is if we run out of IP address space in one of the namespaces because we have more pods than what our initial subnet can allocate IP addresses from, then we will create a second logical switch and add uh, a subnet to the namespace. Um, and so the whole thing grows and shrinks uh, dynamically. Here's um, the annotation that I talked about. So for a namespace where we don't wanna use NAT, we can say no SNAT true. And if NCP sees that, it will not create that uh, source not entry on the tier zero uh, so that you can use direct routing. Okay, let's talk about policy and uh, firewalling. So we have two sets of capabilities. Uh, the first one is what I call predefined label-based rules. And so in this case, uh, we can match on metadata that we see from Kubernetes. So if you create your Kubernetes pods or your Kubernetes constructs, uh, you can label them and you can add arbitrary labels. And we copy those labels onto tags for the pods in NSX and that can be statically matched into firewall rule sets. Uh, you will see that in the demo because I make use of that in the demo. So with that, you can define admin rules that are on top of any kind of rules that a developer might use in its namespace. Um, so you can either predefine everything and have your uh, users uh, specify the right labels when they create their constructs, or uh, you just use the admin rules for base policy. Like, I don't want this protocol to ever be allowed into or out of the uh, namespaces. And then there is Kubernetes network policy, which is the policy language in Kubernetes itself, which is attached to the namespace. And here a user can create its own sets of policies where the user says, okay, this is what should be allowed into the namespace. This is where the traffic is allowed to come from. And in the next version, we will also have the ability to even define what goes out of the namespace. So a uh, pretty powerful uh, tool. Uh, that uses the, the Kubernetes uh, language itself and the Kubernetes API. Uh, you unmuted yourself, so you likely had a question. Nope, press the button by mistake. <laughs> okay, good. So uh, here's the predefined option. So here I'm tagging uh, or I'm labeling my pods with a specific sec group equals web. And actually that's arbitrary. That could be any kind of label. I, we just called it set group here um, because it kind of makes sense for us. And then based on these labels, uh, we can um, match specific uh, firewall rule sets. And that match is also across labels or globally in the system. So that's the, 
more manual way of doing things. And the more automated or the more Kubernetes way of doing things is to use network policy. And here we define in the spec uh, where, what is actually the destination. So in this case, it would be all uh, parts that have the uh, label app uh, equals web. And then, okay, here I'm allowing from that specific namespace that is uh, from the DB layer and then assign port 80. I don't know how much sense this thing makes, but um, you, get, you get the point, right? So you define the policy in Kubernetes itself, and NCP will translate that for you and will create dynamic security groups um, that includes those pods and that uh, will then match on a specific TCP port as, as a destination. So it creates all the firewall rules for you. Okay, um, for east-west load balancing, I showed you uh, IP tables before. I talked a lot about IP tables. Now for NSX, we're actually not using IP tables because we are pinning down the traffic from the pods through OVS to the uh, downstream uh, hypervisor vSwitch. Uh, and actually, I hope I didn't forget to add that slide, else I will have to explain it verbally. Um, and since we're doing that, uh, we needed to change the way uh, we, we do uh, the east-west load balancing in Kubernetes. And we're doing that through um, OVS flow entries or OVS uh, load balancing entries. So we created a, a special version, let's say, of QProxy, which we call our NSX QProxy, that does the programming of OVS uh, to, uh, to implement this east-west uh, loop balancing. Uh, and with that, reducing some of the latency and uh, having a clear separation between management uh, traffic and, um, and pod traffic. For the ingress, um, what we do is uh, we validated the use of the Nginx controller, uh, which is one of the most used um, uh, Kubernetes ingresses. Um, and if uh, and, and we added some functionality that if somebody puts that ingress controller into a namespace network, um, then we will automatically create a um, a what I would call floating IP, so a sourcenet and dnet pair uh, out of our external IP addresses, so that the uh, data pass itself of that ingress controller stays in the namespace network, so in the isolated network. But to make it reachable from the outside world, we assign a netted IP address that is added to the T0 router so that you can reach your uh, ingress controller. Yeah, and here you see um, that we can use all the troubleshooting tools that we also know from, from NSX um, for uh, virtual machines, uh, also in, in the case of um, of Kubernetes. And I definitely forgot to add the slide where uh, I talk about multiplexing the pods traffic <laughs> to, uh, to the VNIC of the node. So what I would do is I would show you the demo and then I would uh, try to find that slide and quickly insert it because I think it's important to, to clarify that. So but let's go through the demo first. Go ahead. 
and otherwise we are gonna see your extremely well-defined whiteboard scale uh, skills in what's the equivalent of MS Paint on Mac OS? <laughs> I don't know. I, I know I will not do that. <laughs> so let's do the demo first, and then I'll search on on the files. Actually, let's let's do it otherwise. Let's just open up this one here. Uh, uh, let's take. Uh, that one that's actually good that's my vmworld session and then let's open up the right slide here we go just need to be flexible so yeah that's what i wanted to talk about which is the the way we are uh, pinning down the pod traffic to the hypervisor vswitch so one of the drawbacks of using uh, overlay encapsulation directly from the node VM is that if you, uh, like in the flannel case we saw before, is that if you use um, an overlay networking solution already on your hypervisor layer, then you end up with a double encapsulation problem. So your, your node VM is encapsulating the traffic in an overlay and is having to chop those, this traffic into 1500 bytes packets and then your downstream hypervisor does the same and then encapsulates it again. So you're losing a lot of the benefits uh, of uh, acceleration technologies that we have in the, in the hypervisor vSwitch layer. So we didn't want to lose that and we didn't want to complicate things by having each node being a transport node itself. So each node VM being a transport node uh, itself. And to solve that, we had to find a way to identify the traffic from coming from specific pods in the hypervisor vSwitch, even so the pods are running in the VMs themselves. And we do that by mean by uh, the help of VLAN IDs. And those VLAN IDs are specific to the node, uh, or even specific to the node's VNIC. So uh, as you see here, that pod is pinned down to the hypervisor vSwitch on a sub-interface that matches VLAN ID 10 and the IP and MAC address of the pod. And for that part, we use VLAN 11 to identify another logical port. <clears throat> and we reuse those uh, VLAN IDs on the other nodes. So they are, um, the VLAN IDs are unique per node. <clears throat> so with that, we still have enough ID space to run 4,000 something pods per node. And today, one of those nodes um, usually doesn't run more than 110 pods. So we are far away from having a uh, scalability limitation just because of using VLANs here. And <clears throat> all that logic of creating those uh, pipes, as I would call them, is done through our NSX CNI plugin and node agent running on those nodes. So when Kubelet um, uh, creates that pod in Kubernetes, it will call that CNI plugin and the CNI plugin will inform our node agent and the node agent will create um, those interfaces in OVS and attach the VLAN ID to that interface so that when the traffic comes from that pod, it's pinned down onto the, um, to the logical interface on the hypervisor vSwitch. Um, that green uh, bow here is uh, supposed to show you that if the, this part needs to talk to that part, there is no direct communication. It always goes to the hypervisor and back, 
And on the hypervisor, we enforce uh, firewall rules, uh, spoof guard, etc., to make sure that nobody is, uh, is spoofing traffic or is uh, trying to bypass rules uh, by taking ownership of the node itself. And with that, we also create a clear separation between management traffic and um, uh, and traffic that comes uh, from uh, from the parts themselves. So of of um, payload traffic, let's say. Okay, and with that, I'll there, go to the demo now. Let's first log into NSX here. Four minutes, I can do it. I can do it. Uh, we are not time constrained. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what you see here is my uh, vSphere environment, and as you can see, it's nested. So um, Actually, all those hypervisors here run as nested hypervisors, nested EXXI on a relatively beefy uh, server. So if you want to play with the stuff, that's that's a good solution, right? Put yourself a, a nice server in in in, uh, in cellar and then uh, and then <laughs> use nested hypervisors. Well, from from um, a resource perspective, what what have you configured? Sixteen gigs of RAM per nested EXXI? Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, sixteen gigs. So that's 32 for, for the nested Kubernetes. Um, how, how much would you need for roughly for, for the um, outer NSXT deployment that, that you have? To, to give um, people... Should be okay with 30, 30-ish. So with, with about six, uh, 64 to 96 gigs RAM, you, you're kind of good to, to deploy a full lab on this on, on your own if you, yes. if you get the bits um, through the expert program or something similar. Exactly. Okay. Okay, so what you see here is I have my Kubernetes master and two nodes. Um, the nodes, as you see, are uh, patched into uh, a logical switch of NSX, node VIFs. So this is my transport connection or my payload connection. Uh, and then here, my VLAN 41 is just my management interface, right? And that's the same for the master and the two nodes. Now take note of that Redis DB uh, server. That's simply a, a, a database uh, or a Redis um, that is running on as a VM and is also attached to an NSXT uh, logical switch with database VMs. And in the demo, I'm showing the combination of having an application that is uh, having the database as a VM, um, but the, the Kubernetes pods running uh, inside of those nodes um, as, as pods, yeah, as containers. So um, let's look at what is already present on this logical switch side. Here's the database VM. Uh, logical switch, and if you look at the ports, you see here's my Redis database VM. You can look at the VIF, we see the VM name, uh, and so that shows you that NSX is also able to import those details from the VMs and match on them. Uh, you will see that later on. Um, now, here you see a number of logical switches Kubernetes cluster one default, kube public, kube system, and those are from the existing uh, namespaces that we have in Kubernetes. So when you install Kubernetes, you will automatically get, automatically get default kube public and kube system as namespaces. And when you start NCP, it's gonna create the logical switches for that automatically for you. So now we'll create a new namespace called Yelp app. 
And as soon as we do that, refresh here, and then there will be a new logical switch created called Yelp app. And right now it only has one port, which is the logical router. So also on the routing side, uh, there is a logical router called Yelp app. And if I look at its router ports, we have an IP address and a subnet assigned to it. As I said, that comes from NSX's IPAM solution. So here we have a, a block, uh, an IP block. That IP block serves IP addresses out of that big pool of IP addresses. And here in the subnets you see, we just uh, used this newly created subnet. So NSX requested a subnet, got it from NSX, sorry, NCP requested a subnet, got it from NSX manager, and then addressed um, the tier one router with the right IP address. Okay, let's go back to the switches. And now the first thing I'll do is I set my context to use that newly created namespace uh, on the CLI. So now everything I create will be created in that namespace. And here I'm now pointing Kubernetes to get my uh, my definition of what should be created from uh, an HTTP link which points to uh, GitHub. So if you look at GitHub here, I have the spec of that application in the VMworld 2017 demo uh, repo. So the first part is my web front end spec. And here I'm creating one replica of a pod that um, that that uses this container image here, uh, Yelp UI, mrefere, uh, which is simply on the Docker Hub. And here I attach my labels, and one of the labels is Secgroup Web Tier, and we saw that in the presentation before. So that's my web front end, and then here we have my app layer, so the app server. Um, that takes it from the Docker Hub again, but this time from my org because I changed it a bit for this demo. And here the set group is again uh, app tier. And here's the port that it uses. Now here we come to the Kubernetes services that glue together the app server and the web front end. Um, and then finally we have our ingress rule which says, okay, all the, all the, uh, I, I expose that Yelp UI service uh, on that host name, yelp.demo.eve.local. That's basically what uh, we create here. So we'll shoot that, and now it creates those objects. And now we can wait here for the pods to be uh, flipping from the container creation to the uh, running phase. Uh, first one is already running, second run is running. And then if we look at the details, you see the Zec group here um, that got uh, attached, or that is the label. If we look at the ingresses, then we see, okay, this is the uh, host name that we can access our application on. So before we access the application, let's have a look at NSX, what got created. So oh, we still have the ports in down. They will flip to up in a second. Oh, let's try that later on again. So one of them is the Yelp UI. Oh, I want to try it. Oh, it's still down. Okay. 
And the Yelp UI, you see down here, has all the metadata from Kubernetes uh, on the port for the Yelp UI. And one of the metadata is the label that we just um, saw in my definition. Uh, we bind a specific IP address that we enforce and a specific MAC address that we enforce for SpoofGuard. And if we look, we have all the counters counting up. We have all the features like uh, port mirroring, etc. here. So all the stuff you get from a logical port, we also, uh, for, for VMs, we also have for uh, our Kubernetes pods. Oh, come on, flip up. Okay, now they're up. That will be the same for the, for the app server. Now, here I have dynamic groups, so-called NS groups. And those NS groups match on specific membership criteria. Let's have a look at the database VM criteria. Here, we're mapping on the VM name. So you saw before that I retrieved the VM name from, from uh, vSphere, and that now uh, means that I will match that logical port of that VM. So I can refer to all the VMs matching with that name is the database VM group. The web tier has a different membership criteria, which is if the logical port um, scope, which is the a key, is set group, and the tag, which is the value, is web tier, then this is a member of that group. And you see the Yelp UI here. And same for the app tier, okay? And then in the firewall, we basically have our admin section, as I said. And that admin section creates or defines what is allowed, what is not allowed. So web servers to web servers should not talk, so drop that. Web servers to app servers, yes, allowed to talk on that app port, which is four, five, six, seven. Uh, app tier to database, yeah, is allowed to talk, and then DNS is allowed, and all the other stuff drop. So if we now look at our app, it should hopefully load. And here now I can vote for my favorite restaurants and then it's counting up down here. So that data here is in the Redis database. So now we can break the application. Uh, what is always great for applications if uh, we basically remove the database access, right? Applications love that. If I now refresh, then you will see yeah, I can't vote anymore, and you don't see my uh, my results anymore. And so I think you should call yeah. tech support definitely. Must be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's a good that's a good one. So what would tech support do? Well, they would use Traceflow. So they would say, hey, where could the problem be? Let's select the logical port of our app server because no, it looks like it's something with the database access, right? And then as the destination, we'll take our Redis DB here, and we won't send a ping, we send a real TCP traffic, and we wanna see what is wrong with 6379, which is my uh, Redis, oops, 79, come on, which is my Redis port. So now I'm sending, an artificial traffic into the system. So it simulates the traffic inside of NSX, and it goes from hop to hop and adds metadata to the Geneva encapsulation, as I said. And so now you get all the details what happens on each of those hubs and what their state is. 
And here I see, yeah, well, actually we're dropping by firewall rule 2064. So now tech support knows what to do. We're looking at 2064. Yeah, somebody has changed that to drop. No wonder that the application is broken, right? And refresh. Just prepared it. Okay. So yeah, that, that was a demo. And in conclusion, because we're already over time, um, what are we doing with NSX? Uh, first of all, we are unifying the VM to pod networking. Uh, we are allowing uh, micro-segmentation between pods uh, in and out of those namespace networks. Um, we enhance visibility. And um, I would say we make it easier to integrate uh, Kubernetes into an existing enterprise networks with existing ways of how to create, uh, how to enable security inside of your, your data center. And with that, if there are any last questions, I would take them now. So from my side, is there any type of hands-on lab available to toy around with this? Uh, not, not, not everybody is as fortunate to, uh, to have servers in their basement. Um, <laughs> there is a critical acceptance factor of the wife sometimes, right? Uh, yeah, both, exactly. bo both in noise, power cost, and procurement costs sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they, there was a lab on HOL at uh, VMworld, and it's certainly going to be made available um, to the outside world. I checked like two weeks ago and didn't find it yet. Uh, so I'm not sure when the HOLs of VMworld 2017 will be published, but um, it, I guess it will be published, right? Um, now that one is um, still um, using an, a little older version than the one you just saw here in the demo. Uh, and we're gonna work on updating that HOL V part also. Uh, in, in the next couple of uh, weeks. Yeah, um, else, if you are inside of VMware, just uh, ping me and I'll give you the right vpod name to uh, start it. Yeah, because I think, let me just grab your presenter rights real quick. That. And you can confirm that in a second that this up here is the pot you're talking about? Uh, I would love to see it. Oh, now I see it. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, so that's, that's available today. Perfect. Uh, so when was it published? Uh, I have no moment. idea. Okay, good, good. But apparently within the last two weeks, I'd say. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, yeah. Even if you're not blessed with an overabundance of hardware and just quickly want to deploy and, and play around with it, um, especially from, from a networking site, there, there's quite a bit of concepts to, to try and understand. Um, the, the VMware hands-on labs are essentially a free resource. Um, the good thing is you do not have to follow the lab manuals at all. Like, um, so it, it's, it's really a nice way to uh, to, to break an environment that you don't own. Yeah, exactly. And there are also NSXT-based labs to uh, get started with NSXT. 
um, which uh, are also a very good resource to uh, to get the base concepts. Then I have one last remark uh, because Michael has been on the last couple of brown bags. Uh, he he also contributed something here. Um, this is Michael's blog, embano1.github.io, uh, and just reading through the last couple of posts. If you are into Kubernetes stuff, um, I highly suggest to give this one a read. Um, it, it is extremely deep dive content on there. And with that, I would keep the line open for two, three more minutes. If there is any further questions, um, either post them into the Q&A or into the chat, and I will relay them onto, um, onto Eve. And with that, also thank you very much um, for presenting, Eve. Uh, it was great sure. having you. Um, I, I think this is one of the brown bags that I'm I'm gonna rewatch the recording two or three times just to uh, to wrap my head around the whole networking stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of content, yeah. It's yeah. it's a heavy brain dump. I, yeah. I agree. <laughs> but that's what makes a cloud interesting, right? Computer memory are pretty yeah. boring. Exactly. It doesn't look like we have any more questions. I, I think everybody's brain is just smoking with the information you've given. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Again, if, if you want to get involved, if you want to do more sessions on vBrownback, Eve, you're very, very welcome. Um, let myself know. Um, I'm easily reachable via Twitter. Uh, my, my phone never stops. <laughs> and okay. We can set something up either uh, still in this year, we still have four open slots, or next year as well. With that, thank you very much, and have a great evening, day, or afternoon, everybody. Okay. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye.